Welcome to the 398th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Danny Gardner, author of the novel Ace Boone Coon, The Tales of Elliot Caprice. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story, one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S. Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Danny Gardner, author of the new novel Ace Boone Coon, The Tales of Elliot Caprice. Danny's acclaimed debut novel, A Negro and an Ofe, was published in 2017. Danny, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Joe. If someone listening hasn't heard about your new novel, Ace Boone Coon, The Tales of Elliot Caprice yet, how would you describe the novel? It's written as if I wrote it yesterday. It's set in 1953 at the height of the land grabs in Chicago for land-based universities to go up based upon the post-war promise. They got to put those big old institutions somewhere, and usually that's poor people's land that gets bulldozed. And it creates a ruckus between the haves and the have-nots, and sometimes they stratify themselves according to race. So I put, I set a book in Chicago in 1953, and it looks like it sprouted and grew out of the ground in 2020 in the same doggone neighborhood. So I may have written the future a little bit, but I think I wrote our condition. And it's got all the car chases and <laughs> shootouts and action-packed excitement you would come to expect in a mystery or a thriller. But, you know. It's fiction, but only on the page, if that's a description. I, I didn't intend to do it, but it just seems like the world caught up to what I was writing. And I got 287 pages out of it. Woo. Do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write your novel? Ooh, Hey, man, that's an interesting intersectional story. I wrote a screenplay during my first and only semester at Columbia College Chicago Film School with the late, great Bernie Mac. It was titled The Tales of Elliot Caprice, The Murder of Bernie Mac. And it was a seven-minute short screenplay that I'd submitted to 
film craft lab <laughs> in order for me to be able to use their editorial space to cut my first short film. And so back before any of us were famous, and Bernie was my stand-up comedy mentor, he let me write a screenplay about him. And the hero of the story was some weird, quirky dude named Elliot Caprice who realized that if he could only get his hands on the script, he could change his life and wouldn't have to, wouldn't have to ruin his ending. He could change his ending for himself. It was seven minutes. So I was 18 years old, and he was nice, Bernie, always, and he let me do that. So it is in part an inspiration of what I was going through as a kid, and I carried that one idea since I've been 18 years old, <laughs> and like 30 years later, I'm still carrying Elliot in my back pocket. Yeah, he's been a, a constant inspiration because I grew up reading noir and I grew up reading anything I wanted out of the Chicago Public Library, which is across the alley. And man, I love staying in the adult book section. Not the adult books, but I love staying in the grown-up book section. I, I don't think they had an adult book, although there were some adult books. But uh, Elliot's the distillation of my imaginings of myself when I'm disappointed in my day. And 30 years of imagining better times through this character i got to know him very well he's been there for me since the help desks at arthur anderson after the dev comedy jam tours and he's been there for me in a lot of different ways so the first novel would have to be him because he's been doing all the work around here you should finally get some reward as you just mentioned you did work as a stand-up comic and you were on the F hbo deaf comedy jam and you've written screenplays so what was the transition there from the stand-up and the screenplays to writing your first novel? Oh, it was a personal one. The screenplay is intended to be as dramatizations of the self. But man, once you're on word 50,000, the soul becomes bare. And in 90 to 120 pages of tight screenplay that would be shot 10 to 1 ratio <laughs> at a page per minute of running length, there's a lot of room to hide the true self. <laughs> but man, Ace Boon Coon is 50 short, fast-paced chapters of inner truth that I wouldn't have been able to write hiding. And it caused a bit of consternation when I was so young and didn't stay in college and went to do stand-up. And so... <laughs> Now that I'm writing novels with the same characters that I created doing stand-up sometimes, I just, it's not just validating, it's just, I, around 48, 49 years old, I'm finally learning how not to hide in an open sight, and I'm finally learning how to put my true self into my work fully. So, I wouldn't chance a novel if I wasn't prepared to start telling the truth around word 25,000, man. I just, you can lie to yourself probably up to novelette length. But once you cross into novella ter territory, you are taking a long walk with your inner self, man. And you gotta come up with something somehow. And that will be the things that you sometimes may believe are not lying exposed. Publishers Weekly Review just came out. And I, I got out of the lion's den pretty good, man. And. Just the thrill of that. It reminds me of being next in line at the comedy store and Mitzi Shore might see me crash and burn or she might put me on next week 
in the same room Richard Pryor went up. It's wow. If you don't bring your true self, you ain't doing it. And I, when I was 19 and doing stand-up and trying to be out there with the grown-ups, I, I probably didn't have much of a self to bring true or otherwise. But now that I'm an adult and I like looking at myself a little more every day, I'm finding that stuff is making it into my novels and it never made it into my shorter material. And I'm happy to grow up in this art form. It's a lot. It requires a lot more of you. Are you still doing uh, stand-up at this point? Yeah, yeah, I still sneak out, but it's just kind of like the guy who's been successful and other stuff shouldn't be up there stealing stage time for some 22-year-old kid. Like, I'm more right with a bunch of other comedians. My buddy Robert L. Hines, who's making a big comeback after getting a successful kidney transplant during the frickin' COVID. Go get him, Rob. He's going to come out on book tour with me sometimes when the world opens back up and we have venues again. And I've been the funniest guy in the Barnes and Noble a lot of times, and it's helped me push some books around. So I'm <laughs> actually adding that to my to my repertoire. I got to sell hardcovers this time, man. It's a lot of tap dancing for my supper. So I might, as well <laughs> lean on my, I might as well lean on my skills. So if I wasn't a comedian before, I'm certainly, as I push this wheelbarrow of books around, I'm, I'm a comedian again now, buddy. <laughs> well, you talked about noir, and and I'm curious what writers inspired you when you sat down and started uh, thinking about turning these Elliot Capri stories into novels. Chandler was just a fixture. You just left him lying around. My whole house was filled with standards, man. Even down to the doggone encyclopedia brand. It wasn't Britannica. That's for children. We get world books in this house. I grew up in one of them talented, tense black folks' households in the 70s. So it was all about education, and it was all about digging deep, and it was all about figuring out what traditions you may already be in. So uh, with a healthy dose of crime growing up in a major metropolis like Chi-Town, you read your influences. So I read a lot of books that horrified me as a kid. Donald Goins, man, because I couldn't believe the same streets I was outside playing could be that dangerous for other Black Americans. I read spooky stuff. I read Chester Himes because no one else had it. Not everything Chester Himes wrote was about crime. So here it is. I'm, you know, going through all of the Harlem mystery series from Chester Himes. And then I run into something like The End of a Primitive, which is about like an interracial relationship in the 50s behind a locked door in the exploration of self. Like, Chester, how you fit that in there, man? I was just dealing with Cottonhead and Gravedigger in Harlem. And the heroin trade with you and the two honest guys on the streets trying to keep things straight for good people in, 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 in the poor streets that need policing. And then you slip this existentialist thing in here. Come on, bro. So, yeah, it was just more of me keeping it with inside influences of the time. And then, man, I like corny stuff. I like real corny stuff. Like, I read Encyclopedia Brown like you would not believe. <laughs> and I liked anything Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, but also like, like digging up old stuff by Hughes Alson, who's like sitting in somebody's basement somewhere getting dusty and somebody should get in a reprint that stuff. I find myself writing a little Alice Walker, a lot of Octavia Butler, sometimes James Baldwin because we're all writing that dude. But then at the same time, man, I'm writing Raymond Chandler because he gave us the metronome. It's like the scale, like the guy who invented what the procedural private investigator does 
in rhythm and speech and sound is the guy you just got to set your watch to if you're doing it, if you ask me. Like, I I want someone who knows Ag- Agatha Christie to read Elliot Caprice and feel I did my homework. But at the same time, if you saw Billy D. Williams do Hans Lando Calrissian against Harrison Ford's Han Solo and got excited about it like I did, there's a little bit of that in there, too. It's new. But it's not. It's a blend of everything about those great pulp novels that I grew up reading that I had no business of reading because I was too little and not for adults. But also the hope and wonder of like being able to grow out of your circumstances as you get older and get more agency in a world that's addicted to criminality. That's how I was growing up. You want to read some Sam Spade. You want to read some Mickey Spillane because you want to find answers to your situations. And it all gets mixed in the batter. There's a line in the new book about it was all fight waffles and everybody's blood, sweat, and snot went into the batter. In the end, man, you got to read everything and you got to let it have its way with you. And you got to get angry with it and throw it across the room and not pick it up for a few days and go back to reading it. And those become your influences, not the stuff you love and remember so well, but the stuff that made you question that comfortable grip on the current world's appearance you had before you read it so to me that's anything and we shouldn't be afraid we shouldn't be locking books up we should let kids hurt themselves in the stacks if they gonna hurt themselves as kids always do let them hurt themselves in the library where they might hurt themselves with some goodness and everything you know yep that sounds great you talked earlier about ace boon coon your new novel on how it's Chicago in the 1950s, but it's also eerily reminiscent of where we sit in the summer of 2020 with the mur- the public murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many others. I'm curious what your thinking is about kind of addressing those issues via noir and via crime fiction. An interesting assertion that's been made of my work in the effect as it's experienced in the mind of the reader is I seem to balance a great many themes in my work. And it gives me the impression that I wish to write a whole lot about things I think and feel about life. And I cram them into my plots. And what I often remark in response to statements like that, where I I live an ambitious, I have all this ambitiousness in my work. I have all these nuances and shades is that's how black folks live, man. That's just what it takes to wake up and survive every day. On my way to work, I'm going to hear about somebody who didn't get appropriate health care their whole life dying while I avoid these dudes that want to recruit me for a gang while I get on this L train that doesn't really have heat and it's 40 degrees below zero outside because I live on the wrong side of town. And then I got whatever fight I had with my old lady on my mind last night. And we don't know if we're going to make the rent at the end of the month. Oh, and yeah, somebody told me the next time they see me, they're going to shoot me because of who my brother was. That was like trying to get to school every day. So Now everybody's beginning to feel what it's like to be surrounded on all sides by desperate circumstances and be forced to make a decision for yourself that doesn't wind you up on your hands and knees with another man's knee on your neck. We're all having to do it now. Like, hey man, 
we all know what it's like for your friends to get you killed. Now, when I was growing up in the sky, trying to be a smart kid, going through tough neighborhoods to get to the smart kids' schools, you know, man, it was tough out there, but it was tough for, for everyone. And it created a, a stasis effect where tough was normal and you rise from there. Now we're all doing that, aren't we? Like, I had to stay away from my best friend. Because they could get me killed because they didn't stay in the books the way I did. Guess what? Now one of my friends could cough on me and they don't care about wearing the mask the way I do. Now I'm dead. It's the same thing. And now we're all relating. It doesn't surprise me that, well, two things are happening in relation to what's going on now that I'll cop to in my work. Number one, everybody thinks we're drifting apart when I see we're coming together. And two, we're all starting to feel what Elliot's uncle, Uncle Buster Caprice, says. And it's in the parlance of the times in the book. The government has the power to make N-words of us all, is what he says. But I don't write N-word because I get that bit of social cosmic license to use the n-word anytime i want to it's, it's an awesome consolation prize it's like what they give you after you don't win like the big jeopardy like they give you that thing if you're black so, so but yeah man like it, i'm sorry it took george floyd's death for me to become a whole person in the eyes of people right now but I want people to think about this if they're going to take any advice from me on the subject at all. And I might know a thing or two being 49, 48 and black. Man, getting squeezed between a bum economy, a federal government that needs an intervention, and COVID-19 felt the same way when I woke up into it as being surrounded by crime in black neighborhoods and then being surrounded by crime and certain deaths from pressure of white neighborhoods and then having to go outside when it's 40 below zero and only got two bus tokens to make it to work and back 20 miles away. We're all starting to learn what it's been like for us the whole time. But now we just got a lot of time to sit together and talk about it. And that's what's different. So if my work allows people to illuminate their own concerns about the times, then I did my job and I'm cool with representing some sort of knowledge for people, but only in the effect that you got to see what coming together. I mean, like even Chicago being at its edges right now, that's how Chicago likes to fight. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You'll see in the next 10 years that city my city get itself back together. I know what it's like. I've seen it before. I've seen America do this before, but I haven't seen it do it with this much conscience. I'm a little cynical, man. You can read it in my work a little bit. You can see me be a little, I, I'm, I'm sardonic if nothing else. And I'm a comedian. So I'm always going to look at the more macabre and bleaker parts and laugh out loud. That's just sure. what I'm stuck with. But I really, if anyone can see the BS in the in the evolutionary part of this and the social change part of this, I think I would have that eyeball and that nose for, for, for the caca. I, I, I can't be cynical, man. This may have shaken something open. This may have shaken an opportunity for all of us to relate with one another deeper. Now I hope so. I, I know it's like a little wormhole that's opened. <laughs> So I'm going to keep throwing material in there. I don't know how long before it closes, but right now I feel like we're going to get over this BS of the notion of being separate real soon, man. I just feel it. So on that note, do you think that your work, as well as a lot of others, Walter Mosley and many others, do you think that at this moment, do you think that noir and crime fiction will be open to those narratives and what you were just describing, that sense of desperation when you're trying to get to work 20 miles and 40 degrees with two bus tokens? Yeah. yeah. Just where else are we going, though? Like, honestly, right now, I, I wrote a book about Black lives from a Black American-centered point of view. And I just so happened to write about the crime that exists atmospherically from within my environment. Because the crime has to go somewhere for everyone else to have a nice neighborhood. But who do you call to take out your trash when you live at the dump? And that's what they do to Black folks when it comes to crime and policing. So when I discuss with folks the openness of crime fiction in the genre and its thought leaders to the notion that Black folks can write a Black existence from within crime fiction novels... I, I kind of suppress a giggle and I ask, crime hadn't looked like Al Capone since Elliot Ness, but remember Willie Horton? Crime looks yeah. like Wu-Tang Clan and Wu-Tang Clan looks like me. So perhaps it's a little less about them being open to it and a little more about folks realizing that you can only retell Philip Marlowe so many times, man, before 
folks who've been living in America in the same amount of time as you, who have experienced crime on their levels the same kind of way, have a say in how it's dramatized and told to other audiences. It's just, what else are we going to tell at this point? Like, I get it. But at the same time, now that people are interested in black folks, they're also interested in, okay, if we look at the situation with Yusuf Hawkins and Bensonhurst, and then track forward HBO's success with The Sopranos, you see where the infatuation socially leads to expansion in the arts and culture. Same thing. So crime fiction is just going to start looking black because black is what's under the American microscope right now. So it's a good time to be a black guy writing in that particular, pitching in that strike zone. So I feel like Daryl Strawberry, man. You can bring me in the last two innings and I'll pull it out for you because race is a unique construct that is interesting to everyone, but only understood by some folks. And like, that's sexy, man. I, I was surprised that to be an African, to be a Black American mystery writer when I came on the scene with a Negro on an Ofe in 2015 was still like an exotic thing. And I'm just like, wow, really? Because like a guy named Barack Obama who looked like me, <laughs> who was in the same neighborhood <laughs> as me in Chicago, is walking around and we're all sounding the, uh, the same. Yeah, vote, get out. Pull your pants up, that kind of thing, right? I'm on this, I'm eating off Obama being in the White House while I'm at Boucher Card 2015. And people are like, ooh, look at the black writer. Do you know Walter Mousley? And I'm like, <laughs> man, I feel like I just got off the plane to Papua New Guinea and just nobody got down like there in a while, like from my tribe. Hey, yeah, we write mysteries too. Like, how is this possible <laughs> that it's still sexy to be a black? mystery rut what listen man i call like for my black friends like y'all can you believe it there's still gold in them there hills i could <laughs> i could be one of the only black people doing something in 20 in the 21st century like we're on bars or something i thought now like a black mystery writer shouldn't be so sexy but if you want to hear from me I, I love it i but see that's the thing jeff also it shouldn't be glossed over Black American history is still your history, man. You should probably still know a little something about that. You should probably, yeah, you should understand about how there's no RICO to strip white citizens of their rights until you got the keep of a committee going into black neighborhoods and stripping it of civil rights to cure its organized crime while Sam Giancana is still operating 20 yards away. Everybody needs to know about this kind of stuff now. How many little white kids I hear from every day who've been arrested at a protest for just speaking out on what they believe in? Everybody wants to know what to do to cope in these interesting times. And man, there's a certain race of people that has been coping all this time with this stuff. We might have a couple of things to say to help you out. Sure. 1799. Are you trying to get a film or TV series of LA Caprice going? To tell you the truth, it isn't misunderstood that I hold ownership value in Bronzeville Books, which is my publisher note. And to leverage what we do in printing and warehousing and being able to to feed the supply chain for books and related goods product is I had to leverage the film and TV and the audiobook rights. The bank got those. 
<laughs> but <laughs> but Hollywood is bullish on those, and there'll be an announcement soon as to the partners that are brought on board from Hollywood to help me produce the first ten audiobooks that Bronzeville puts out. And we're producing audiobooks is sort of like the way that I uh, rekindle my producing career. So Elliot is a pilot once, you know, we find the appropriate distribution partnership. Don't know when, don't know how. Folks have called, hanging out at NBC for a little while last year. And I was doing some stuff independently and people like it. And I am going to apply faint attention to it as I work like a smart boy would on the things right in front of him, which are getting these hardcovers moving. But he's coming. And people are interested and we've put a lot of thought and a lot of work into it. And we actually hired a couple of writers already who have TV credits to help us flesh it out. So there'll be more probably even before you go to press with, with this interview. So stay tuned. Great. What kind of research did you do for the 1950s setting for the novel? Oh, besides listening to all the arguments I got into with my grandfather about... (laughs) things. I mean, I grew up as a newspaper kid. So many of the newspapers that I write about happened in Chicago. Chicago was the site of mass media for African Americans throughout the the period of the Great Migration, which started effectively when Chicago was founded by a black guy in 1971. But black media in the form of daily and weekly newspapers got out to the entire United States and then sometimes exported out of the United States through the Pullman Porter. My grandfather, John Lehman Gardner Sr., he was a distributor of goods after the Pullman Porters weren't needed anymore because, you know, the automobile replaced rail. Microfiche, it was my friend. And it's funny because I found some crimes committed by by some relatives in some of these newspapers. I went to the JSTOR archives for a lot of firsthand stuff. I didn't want to digest a lot of books, but I've got a laundry list of them that I'll have on the website. And then, of course, in the book, I include all of everyone's work in the the bibliography. I talk to PhDs. I'm one of those kind of guys. Hey, buddy, can I bother you for a minute? Hi, here, I bought you a cup of coffee. You don't know me, but you're a PhD in history and I need five minutes. Like I'm one of those <laughs> kind of guys. But I also dug deep into research text about what policing and crime statistics were like back then. I did a lot of Pew Research materials, man. And I pulled together a, a lot of PhD research papers. And so I really researched history more by the numbers to write this book rather than read a lot of other people's books. And so what I determined is voting patterns are determined by economic patterns and economic patterns are are, uh, in this period of time in Chicago determined by migration patterns. And if your community was stable, People who looked like you and spoke the same language as you had room for you and your migration didn't cause trouble for you or anyone else. But if you were sleeping eight families to an apartment because the media told everyone around you that you were a danger to them before you even got there, you got no shot of growing from that negative 10 space where a Lithuanian immigrant's got a Lithuanian uncle and a family and somebody's going to help them learn English and they're going to get a job. As opposed to, oh my God, I saw a black guy, I better get on nextdoor.com and tell everybody to call the police. Like it's Ray Bradbury and Fahrenheit 451. Like we've got that now. What you got to do is look at the conditions that you live in 
and work outward toward how they affect other people. Yeah, you got a racist color line. Where was that racist color line created? Oh, man, there's redlining. You mean to tell me that somebody sat in the president's office back in the day with a red pencil and a map of Chicago and said, this is how we're going to decide to give out mortgages? Show me where the black people live and we can draw our mortgage rates outward from there by home value. The closer you live to the black folks, the less your property is worth. But then after that, you say, yeah, the blacks brought down my property value. Yeah, but right behind you is a government bulldozer that says, oh, sorry, blame the blacks. This is where the new dormitory is going. You got to piece that together. You could read a lot of Isabel Wilkerson or something. And there are a lot of great Dr. Akinde. I keep forgetting the rest of them, but how to be an anti-racist and how not to be a racist. Like, you know, I like books like that because they're like compendiums for the information that I have to go out and digest in order to come up with plot. It's all out there. It's just scattered in ways that if we don't, a little mini detective has to live inside of all of us to know what's going on with our taxation now. Who really understands that anymore? A little bit of, you have to be a little bit of a detective to know whether or not you truly satisfy your deductible before you call in a health claim anymore. So the information is out there. I perhaps as a part of my creative coping skills, I fashion these things in the stories. Perhaps a lot of the stuff exists within my horror, but man, all you really got to do is like download a freaking annual report from the Chicago police department dated 1950 and you'll get 280 pages of what's been happening. And then you just like Google search terms. <laughs> <laughs> So, given your work on the two novels, Elliot Caprice novels, what writing advice would you offer for listeners who are writing their own stories and novels? Ooh, what are you saving it for? What are you saving it for? Don't listen, man. I'm on my second novel. I wrote a hell of a lot of short stories. If you just wanted a short story from me, I just give you one. Yeah, I could do that. But it bought me time with the novels because I didn't have anything for the slush pile after a Negro and an old friend. It was like, hey, wow, what else you got? And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> so I just kind of caught with my pants down. So I struggled with finding a truthful edge to my work. A Negro and an old friend got close. But I really wasn't revealing myself. But I just had like way too much of a tough year, the year before everyone else started having a tough year, for me to find a place to hide. So I just started writing raw, man. And Publishers Weekly said my sequel is raw and painful. And that's a nice lead, but it's kind of tough. But yeah, (laughs) it was kind of raw and painful, man. I escaped Publishers Weekly with a good review off of something that really cost me a lot in like personal pain and friendships. I found in my own imprint when a lot of people were throwing offers at me and it was a good year to be a diverse guy. And I'd said no to a lot of people and that offended some folks, but I really believed in what I was believed, what I was doing. And I wanted to write open and I didn't want to be told what crime should look like after I put my heart and soul into it. So if you don't want to be denied, if you don't want to be told no, if you want people to see that that novel that you're writing or that short story that you're writing, or a haiku that you're writing, truly is the best thing in the world, then you better dispense healthy buckets of the deepest, darkest, sweetest you in there you got. Don't hold back. 
What are you saving it for? Let it all go. Sink it on the first basket. Just do it. By the time I, man, I'm going to do this at this point in my career. And then next day, no, nah, man, do it all now. Go. Just do it. Nobody's watching. Nobody cares. Your process isn't unfolding to everybody's delight. You're not like like starring and being John Malkovich by your, all by yourself. Like you're not looking at yourself writing. Just, man, be naked, be open, be free. Find a beta reader that you trust. Take all of those things you're afraid everyone else in the world is going to know about you and write them. And just trust that nobody's going to be going to be looking for gotchas from you. They're going to be looking for yourself. That's what they want. Just do that. Just write it, man. Hey, listen, the best thing that happens the, or the worst thing, the worst, best thing that can happen is all your secrets wind up in the 99 cent bin. Nobody's going to tell on you. Write your truth, take your lumps and make certain you get it all in there before you type the end so that should life take over. And you don't get another chance. You shut the lid on it real good. You put yourself, your true self into it. Like, just be true. Don't hold back. It's a, That's great. It's That's a great movie. advice. So yeah. what novel have you read recently that you enjoyed? I don't read enough, actually. <laughs> so aside from checking every page of my book over and over again, like, this is the side of the, the interview where I go to uh, the bookshelf. <laughs> Because I've been reading my friends in pockets. Hold on a second. I got to give my buddy. I got to give my buddy some shine. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Where are we? All right. Well, look, man. I got to get my Latinos in order. Hipster Death Rattle by Richie Navarez has been on my bookshelf on a regular basis. I really enjoy it. It's fast paced. It also has nuances as far as a whole different burg. I read and write about Chicago a whole lot, so I get tired of that, and I, I like dipping off. I really want somebody to take over for that New York and soul kind of crime fiction. I, I don't know. I, I just I hope somebody writes that stuff, because I would love to publish it if I got to see it. I am reading all of my buddies in the Shattering Glass anthology that went out for Planned Parenthood, if you're into that sort of thing. I've got like Elliot Caprice's granddaughter, a story about her in here. There's also great works by Eric Beatner in here, Rachel Howell Hall. And we've got Valerie Plame. She opened it up with an essay and the great Heather Graham edited it. And it's all for charity. So if anybody wanted to do that, they'd be happy that I gave them a plug. But these truly are like the books that I've had lying around for a little while. And then I've got some competitors' books, but we won't name them. <laughs> <laughs> so where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your Elliot Caprice novels? Ooh, go to bronzevillebooks.com because the staff around here assures me there's going to be a real dope website up by the time this podcast breaks. And you'll find information on how to buy us if you're a bookstore. You'll find information on how to buy our books if you are uh, just a reader. Uh, not just a reader. I need you more than anything. And you may also find me on all the social media platforms. Just look for me where all the other authors hang out. Danny Gardner. I have a Facebook page that gets like a lot of good traffic. Danny Gardner, facebook.com slash Danny Gardner, ACW for actor, comedian, writer. Cause that was when 2008, I had to do that. And stay tuned because we'll be advertising and telling everybody where they may buy our books and all of our other online events and 
Thank you to everyone for being so supportive of a new imprint because like we're on the map, man. And people have been very nice, really exciting. And launching a an imprint during the pandemic, that's not easy. <laughs> Great. Again, we've been speaking with Danny Gardner, author of the new novel, Ace Boon Coon, The Tales of Elliot Caprice. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy. And Danny, thanks for doing this interview. Jeff, thank you so much, man. I had a great time.